Welcome to the Commercial Disco, a voyage of commercial discovery. The only show dedicated to exploring the commercialization of great ideas and research across deep tech and science, driven by the ambition of the people that make up Australia's unique innovation landscape. We talk to the greatest minds about what is influencing their work and their insights into the ingredients needed to bring great Australian innovation to life. Hello, I'm James Riley. Welcome to the Commercial Disco. What a special program today, I guess you'd call it special. We're interviewing Larry Marshall, the Chief Executive of the CSIRO. Welcome, Larry. Thanks for having me, James. And if I knew it was a disco, I would have brought my piano. Oh, well, there you go. I assume that you play lots of instruments. Is that right? Uh, just piano. So let me just start by saying you've got just a few short weeks to go in your tenure at the helm of the National Science Agency. You've just published a book this week. So we're going to touch on some of those things. But I guess you should consider this an exit interview. <laughs> Perfect. All right. You started in this job in 2015, the beginning of 2015. I think it's fair to say the CSIRO was a very different organization back then. I just wonder if you can kind of describe to me the culture that you arrived into and maybe that first kind of 18 months, two years. There was quite a bit of pushback. I remember there was a lot of talk about your appointment and, uh, and a lot of talk once you got in there about what you were doing. Yeah, and James, I definitely wasn't from Central Casting to be running a 100-year-old iconic national treasure. Definitely not the usual kind of CEO you'd expect. And I might just back up a step because I was at CSIRO in 1984, so I had a very particular perspective of what CSIRO was like based on what it was like in the late 80s when I was a, a student there. And I left Australia in about 88. And back then, for me, two things really annoyed me, which is why I left Australia. One, you know, scientists can't be CEOs because that didn't seem fair. Why can't we be CEOs? And the second thing was, you know, if you want to do innovation, you've got to go to Silicon Valley. And so I kind of had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about wanting to prove that I could be a CEO and also trying to shift the needle on Australia's innovation dilemma. So I spent probably the next 30 years sort of wrestling with those two things and had a little bit of success here and there. But probably about 10 years ago, I had a bit of an epiphany about CSIRO and I really saw it as potentially the catalyst that could really be the kind of the secret weapon, the secret source in Australia's innovation dilemma. And it really became an obsession, almost like, you know, any one of my six startups. So I did something I'd, I haven't done since I was a graduate. I actually applied for a job <laughs> and and I pitched Simon McKeon, who was the chair of CSIRO at the time. I cold called him, talked to him, and he was a bit, you know, it took a bit. I ended up having to fly down to Australia, meet the board, meet him. And each time I met them, I kind of unpacked this vision, this idea of what we could do differently, how CSIRO could be a different organization, how that could be the secret of kind of cracking the innovation dilemma. And after quite a while, they sort of started to trust me. And it was a pretty brave thing that that board did, you know, Simon and the board then. Because as I said, I'm not from central casting to run a national science agency, but that's what it needed. And I think part of it was Simon didn't know me, but Macquarie had backed my second IPO and they also backed Southern Cross Ventures. So it was easy for them to do diligence on me and realize most of what I, hopefully all of what I was saying was true and they kind of bought into the vision. So that's kind of the mindset I went in with. And I got a bit of a surprise when I came into CSIRO because I was back in 1984 and CSIRO is amazing, right? Yes, it, you know, suits and ties and very government and everyone called me Dr. Marshall. 
And it took quite a bit to get people comfortable in, you know, T-shirts and calling me Larry, but really important because if you get stuck in a hierarchy, if you're the leader sitting on the top of the pyramid, you make it too hard for people to follow you and you make it almost impossible for them to tell you when you're wrong. So trying to level the place out and make it a bit more informal, a bit more like a startup. And probably the second thing, it literally happened on my second week on the job. This group called the Friends of Syro sent me a 30-year chart of Syro's headcount back to 1985. And I realized that we'd been declining sort of slowly, but then accelerating for 30 years. And we'd lost about 30% of our people. And so I realized, oh, that's a problem, right? Because innovation organizations need to grow. And if you've been shrinking for 30 years, it can be a bit depressing. But the thing I noticed when I talked to them is they were still there. Despite all that, they were still there. They're still coming to work every day. So for me, it was all about reminding them of why they were still there, why the place was so important, and kind of slowly but surely earning their trust so that we could make a change. And that change was really, really hard, as you pointed out, James, really hard. Okay, so if institutional research or research generally is all about priorities, when you first got in there, you had to have a look around and see where you wanted to you know, place the organization's priorities. I'm sure you had some marching orders from the board, but generally you had some big decisions to make. So what was the basis for some of those decisions? If I'm remembering right, there was some pushback around some climate science and oceanography research. Just talk us through how that went down. Yeah, and it goes back to that 30-year decline. So we opened up a crowd platform and kind of gave all 5,500 people a voice. And it was very noisy and very disruptive, but it was also kind of a pressure relief valve that let people get 30 years of issues off their chest. And after a while, it sort of calmed down. And, and then it sort of turned into a really positive, generative conversation about what are we going to do? You know, what are we going to do differently so that we stop declining and maybe even grow? And the thing that really, for me, was the turning point There's something I learned in Silicon Valley. So when I first went to the Valley, I thought, gee, I'm going to be, you know, I'm an Aussie scientist. What do I know? They've got the best science in the world. And and I guess what I learned was actually they don't. We're just as good as they are. But the difference is they have a gift for reading the market, you know, kind of almost seeing the future differently and then navigating themselves to take advantage of that. And so the way I translated those 30 years of learning about market vision for CSIRO was really asking the people, why are we here and what are the problems that we really need to solve for Australia? Because, you know, we're here for Australia. We're here to solve national challenges. What are they really specifically? And how this turned into the turning point is it uncovered some really uncomfortable truths. But you got, you know, this amazing brains trust on this crowd platform talking about things that are really uncomfortable, like how do we get to net zero without derailing our economy? How do we manage our health? 40% of our populations suffering from chronic disease. What do we need to do differently? But behind every one of those uncomfortable truths, as you know, James, usually is hiding an innovation waiting to happen. So over the course of that year, we went from sorrow boiling the ocean with this amazing science, but really a solution looking for a problem. We kind of narrowed it down to these are the six problems we need to solve for Australia. And if we could just do that, maybe we could do a bit of a turnaround and grow. You know, this notion of market vision, it's hard to find in Australia. It's Australian companies don't naturally do it. But Syro could because it had this amazing, you know, firstly, very some of the smartest people in the country, but also very diverse set of experiences. You know, we had people from industry, from government, from universities, so a lot of diversity, but we hadn't really empowered all of the voices in the way we did with this crowd platform before. 
you know, it took Saro 100 years to get into the sage green zone for gender equality, you know, sitting now at about 44% by gender. But in the last sort of six years, we almost doubled the female leadership. So really transitioned our leadership, what a leader looks like. And we did double our First Nations population. That empowering different voices, really tapping into that diversity of perspectives, enabled us to pick the right problems to solve. And that in turn actually doubled the value that we delivered back to Australia. And we audit that, we measure that. So I'm just saying that because they're really interconnected. Diversity drove innovation and innovation doubled the impact. And so people really started to see things work. All right. I'm just going to preface this by saying we will have absolutely no hope of getting through everything that I would like to talk to you about today. So I'll try and get shorter. <laughs> but we'll, no, no, but we'll, uh, we'll press ahead. And I want to talk specifically about a couple of programs that you instituted. But before I do, let me ask you this. What was it like to come back to Australia? I mean, anyone who's lived overseas for any length of time, I mean, I think there's always a re-entry issue. Now, you've come from Silicon Valley back into a an organization that you thought you had a plan to make positive changes to, but that was kind of an intellectual thing that you were looking at it from the outside. What was it like personally to arrive back here? What did you find generally in Australia? What were the frustrations? Oh, look, I mean, we're definitely behind places like Silicon Valley and Israel in innovation. And James, you've written amazing articles about that. I wasn't quite prepared for the brutal reality of that. But at the same time, it totally felt like coming home. And actually, specifically coming back into Syro felt like coming home because despite all of the challenges that we have, there's something kind of wonderful about Australians. You know, we're a bit prickly sometimes. We don't like being told what to do. We're a bit irreverent. But underneath the rough exterior, there's usually a heart of gold. You've just got to dig a little bit to find it. And Aussie entrepreneurs, by the way, are for me the epitome of that. <laughs> they almost always say the wrong thing, <laughs> especially in Silicon Valley. But it kind of makes you love them more because they're so authentic. And Syro people are very authentic that way. Okay, let me ask you this. You kicked off the ON program, which is entrepreneurship mentorship program. I'll get you to describe it in just a moment. And also Main Sequence Ventures or the CSIRO Venture Fund. Why don't we start with ON? Like, what were you trying to do there? Was it cultural? Were you actually trying to drive spin-outs? What was that all about? Yeah, no, it was all about culture and learn by doing. And Syro, like most government institutions, failure is not an option. You know, we don't try something unless we're sure it's going to work. And you can't innovate that way, as you know, James. You know, innovations learn by doing. And it's funny, we do it really well when we're children, but, but when we become adults, we get more risk averse. So ON was kind of a safe place to go and learn and fail. And everyone who went through ON failed at some point in the program and, and they realized, you know, the sky didn't fall in and everything was okay. We piloted it internally, tested it on our own people, and we tested it almost equally on public good research as well as things that we thought we could commercialize. For the public good stuff, we just wanted to teach the scientists that innovation techniques are a way to deliver more impact. For the public good scientists, impact isn't dollars, it's societal and environmental benefit, which we also audit. But the techniques are just as applicable. And some of our most successful teams were from the environmental science area, including climate science. I mean, yes, we did lose some climate scientists during the change because they didn't want to change. But gee, the ones that stayed created some incredible things that you know we still use today, things like grain cast and yield profit. A lot of the technology that underpins the Australian Climate Centre, ACS, that the government created a few years later, 
came from innovations that those climate scientists did in partnership with the rest of the organization. So once we kind of got it working, and it's a little bit like in the US, there's a program called iCorps, which generally is considered one of the world's best science accelerators. We surprised ourselves when we rolled it out to the university sector. So we've done more than 50 institutions, you know, thousands of, of scientists have gone through it. It gives a better outcome than iCorps. And I think the reason it does, the companies that go through tend to raise about twice as much money as the iCorps companies do. They tend to have about twice the diversity that iCorps do. And again, it's because diversity and innovation are connected. Our first three CEOs out of on were female. And Sylvia, who you probably have met, or during COVID, you probably used CoView, her amazing telehealth system. The great examples of innovation targeting big societal problems for Australia and solving them when we needed it most. So that was the idea behind ON. We'll stay on, on for a moment. Yes, thousands of scientists have gone through it. What would the enduring kind of impact of ON be? And would you expect your successor to carry it on? And has it sort of developed its own momentum where perhaps it does itself out of its role? Oh, look, I think it'd be great if, if ON did itself out of its role. But, you know, given, given we're still sitting about 72nd in the world for innovation efficiency. I think it's got a good life ahead of it. We doubled on the last government doubles its funding and the new government decided they really got behind it. The universities have really got behind it. So on only works in those six national challenge areas that CIRO focuses on. So how do we adapt to climate change? How do we get to net zero? How do we create more value from our science so that our kids have better jobs than we did? How do we manage AI and digital so that it it creates employment rather than consuming it. How do we shift the country from shipping commodities like raw food and raw materials in ag and, and mining to adding value here? And when you look at what they do, it's incredible across those 39 unis, the stuff they come up with. And then when you bring them into CIRO to go through this program, they get to access all of this gear, all of these engineers that we have in the organization that kind of help them prototype. So it gives them a bit more confidence to believe in themselves. and then. What was missing really from on, we knew this in the beginning that we had to solve it, was no one will fund these things. They're, they're, you know, Australian industry and Australian venture doesn't have a great track record of funding really high-risk science projects, and, and neither should they, right? It's, these things are really hard to fund. But that was why we also created MSV, also piloting inside CIRO first to kind of figure it out, because I, I knew a lot about starting and running venture funds, as you know, James, but I'd never done one in government before, and <laughs> never inside it. 100-year-old institution before. So I had a lot to learn about that. So talk us through the genesis of that main sequence is interesting because it kind of came out of the CSIRO. And I want to ask you very basically, why should the CSIRO be involved in in funding as a kind of a, a venture funder? So it seemed a little bit radical at the time. Um, <laughs> and I guess it's come a long way since then. It's raised a, a hell of a lot of money outside of CSIRO since then. So you obviously had something very clear in mind when you set it up. What was that? Yeah, so most research organizations' success is licensing the technology. And if you're, say, Deakin University or University of Melbourne, where you're doing therapeutic drug research, you know, big pharma, that works pretty well, right? You license a drug or University of Queensland with Gardasil, you can pull down hundreds of millions of dollars in royalty fees from that. So that's not a bad model. But it's not the case in most other areas of innovation. You know, Wi-Fi, we got lucky, but in general, you don't. In general, no one's going to pay you that kind of money for an idea, for just inventing something. And this was the idea behind the book, by the way, that 
inventing isn't innovation and one of our challenges in Australia is we kind of think it is. We kind of think the invention, the idea is the big thing when the reality is and what every startup knows is, no, the idea is the start and then everything you do after that decides whether it's an innovation or a failure. So the idea of the fund was as a vehicle to fund the things that we need to carry further down the commercialization pathway, not just for us, but for the whole system. The challenge in an organization like CSIRO, so if you take away the $300 million that we spend on providing national labs for all the universities to use and us, you know, their shared national facility like the ship and the telescopes and the disease preparedness lab in Geelong and so on. If you take that $300 million away, then half of CSIRO's income comes from external revenue and half comes from government. So you're sort of trapped on this treadmill where you need to earn revenue, but you also need to be doing things that are going to deliver great value for the country. So running CSIRO is all about keeping those two things in check, you know, don't go too far down the revenue pathway, but far enough so that you know what you're doing is actually important. Because if a customer is willing to co-fund you or pay you anything for something, it's a good indicator that they're going to use it and that's important. Otherwise, it's easier to fool yourself and say, oh, you were doing this great thing, but we're judging that internally. There's no customer to tell us whether we got it wrong or right. So keeping that in balance is really important. But at the same time, Sarah's investment in pure science had declined to a point where it was just way too low for us, a national science agency. So our hope with both ON and the fund is that the things that we did commercialize, that did get through, would create a new revenue stream to support pure science. And that worked amazingly well, better, I say, than we expected it to. So our revenue from equity is about three times what our revenue from royalty is. And the revenue from royalty, yeah, we grew that probably 30 or 40% over the strategy. So that was okay. But tripling it through equity that's what enabled us to invest well over 400 million, you know, about a four times uplift in investment in pure science. And again, the pure science is so important because if you don't plant those seeds for the future and you just commercialize what you've already got, you'll suck the pipe dry. There'll be nothing left. You've got to recycle all of those funds back into more research so that it becomes almost like an evergreen fund. And MSV is an evergreen fund. Okay. So main sequence has certainly raised a lot of money. Talk me through, how important was it? I mean, you've got some funds have put money into it. You've got a bunch of individuals that put money into this fund. How important was it to get the host plus on board? It's like you were stalking a wildebeest, I think. <laughs> I, I, I read that section of your book and uh, that was clearly a big moment, as was the Tamasek investment. Why are those two in particular important? Yeah, so when Bill and I were doing Southern Cross back in 2007, it was almost impossible to get a big Australian super fund to put money into venture. They just didn't want to touch it. And after the GFC, it went even worse. <laughs> so we got lucky with Blackbird. And that was a big risk for Sam at Host Plus to do Blackbird. But Blackbird was very focused on digital internet. It had Mike Cannonbrook strongly supporting it. Nikki's a guru at picking internet startups. And Rick has got an amazing track record as a banker. So it was just the right recipe. But for MSV, we were trying to address a market failure. So Jack Steele and I and Jen Baxter kind of got the thing going internally. And one of the things we were worried about was we wanted to be 100% honest with our potential investors because National Science Agency and Venture, in a good fund, 70% of deals fail, right? As a National Science Agency, it's very hard to weather failure. And our brand, our trust is very high. So we had to be very... What am I, what am I trying to say? Our pitch to Sam... <laughs> was, Sam, this is not going to be the highest financial return. <laughs> you know, 
There are other funds that are going to give you better financial return, you know, like Blackbird has. But we're here because we want you to trust us because you did Blackbird and it worked out well. So we sort of told him, why are we doing it? Because there's this market failure that we think long-term is going to cripple innovation in Australia if we don't fix it. And it's really simply this, James. If you want to do a digital startup today, there's three or four funds now that you'd go to that are as good as Silicon Valley funds. If you're doing a medical device startup, there's fewer to choose from, but you could still do it here. But if you're doing anything else in science, you'd have to go to the Valley to get the money, really. And I would. And so MSV was all about, how do we fix that? How do we bridge these really innovative startups in from deep tech and science? How do we de-risk them to a point where a local VC will invest in them? And MSV's done 50 deals that have been followed on eventually by an Australian co-investor, which is great. And we prefer Australian co-investors because we want to keep the company here in Australia. So back then to Sam, it was if we fix that problem, and Sam, you know, you are absolutely critical in this because if you come in, then other super funds will ask why and eventually they will come in. So we're going to take a bit on faith. You've got the National Science Agency to de-risk the deals. We will help them with their customers. We will help them with their tech. In the end, he took it to his members. He kind of did what I did with Syro. He kind of went out and said, hey, how do people feel about backing the National Science Agency to solve a big national problem? And because of who his members are, he got this sort of groundswell of support from them about, hey, let's do something good for Australia. And he's unique because his members are very young. They're young people in the service industry. So they've got a very long career. They can afford to take a little bit more risk, and they kind of seem to feel good about doing it. So what have we done? We've been really honest. We we weren't going to give the biggest financial return, but we found something else that they cared about, so that sort of made up for the difference. The amazing thing, and Sam pointed this out (laughs) years later, he said, you realize Main Sequence is now a global top quartile fund. (laughs) Who'd who'd have thought that would have happened? I'm so glad we didn't promise it, because it's always better when you exceed expectations, as you know. Oh, that's good. Whenever you fix an ecosystem problem, and another one kind of reveals itself. And I guess you've gone from on and the culture piece to needing something to fund these deep science startups. I'm wondering, one of the issues that we come across in our writing constantly would be things like government as a customer, getting on board as a customer to buy product from some of these very smart companies. So without restricting it to government as a customer, maybe there's some cultural cringe across by the corporate sector as well. How do you find that? I mean, is that an issue? Oh, yeah, definitely. And as you imagine, we measure everything, right? So Soros NPS was almost single digit, not quite. It was 10 or 11 when we started. It's 56 or something now. It's way, way higher. So we've really kind of woken up to the importance of customer and customer engagement. The APS hasn't gone on that journey yet. And it's very hard for them, right? Because they do see the public as their customer. But they're also kind of guarding governance is so important for them. So they've got to have a very particular culture to do that. Relative to the APS, we measure our culture. We started pretty much the same as the APS. We're now kind of at the benchmark for Australia and New Zealand culturally through the Denison survey. So that's great. We've done a big shift. But Australia and New Zealand's only about halfway to the best in the world. So we've still got a way to go in industry and in CSIRO to be you know, up there with the most innovative companies in the world. But we're halfway there, so that's better than not. In order for them to change, we tried another intervention. So getting customer-centric, measuring NPS, really listening to feedback, really delivering what they needed. But James, the really big one, and this was our next big bold bet and the one that's still playing out, was the National Missions Project. So CSIRO itself is a mission-directed organization, but could we get other organizations to lead or co-lead missions with us? 
And in particular, because industry is really reluctant to invest in science, we end up buying innovation in from the US or other places where it's already worked. We don't really like to fund our own. Could we get Australian industry to lean into missions if we pick the right problems that they care about? And would that be a way of measuring it? And long story short, you know, we've launched eight of these national missions now, unlike the European missions, which, as Mariana will tell you, rely entirely on government to fund them because they're dealing with market failure. So by definition, government should fund that. Our missions are almost majority funded by industry, Australian industry. And that was sort of our next step on the innovation dilemma because you've got to find a way to get industry to come in more, come in earlier, take more risks, get involved. And the wonderful thing about missions is we put the framework together but we don't necessarily lead them. We might lead them to begin with, but usually an industry partner takes over. Like for hydrogen, Fortescue stepped up and said, you know what, we're going to go hydrogen all the way. We're going to do hydrogen mine site. We're going to do hydrogen trucks. We're going to, it's a massive bet. Took a few years to get them there, but gee, they're on their own, <laughs> they're on their own mission now. Similar thing with some of the banks around mitigating and managing climate risk or, or funding drought using science to quantify the risk for drought and then unlock more funding for farms that are struggling in drought or in climate effects. So I think it's still got a way to play out, but it's one of the reasons I think CSIRO will continue to grow really strongly and continue to deliver really strongly because so much of our organization, it's almost a third now, are really behind these missions and driving them and so many companies have leaned in to support them as well. All right, we're going to draw to close in a moment. Just before I do that, there are a couple of things. Firstly, like in building capability, in Australia and even focusing the attention of government and focusing the attention of the smart people in this country, there are people in the past who suggested, well, we don't have a burning platform. So what a shame we don't have a burning platform. We've only got beautiful beaches and great weather. But now maybe we do. Geopolitical circumstances have made the world a less certain place and we are trying to draw our attention to developing you know, the sovereign capability where we believe it's strategically important. Tell me, in this area, how do you harness that? How do you make sure that dual-use technologies and the defence capabilities are commercialised in a way that enable, you know, Australian economy to benefit? So an area that you and I are both passionate about, James, is semiconductors and should Australia have its own fab? I think the CHIPS Act and the, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, have created a huge gravitational pull in that direction. And I think... Our opportunity as Australia is maybe not to try and come up with a solution for SEMI because it's probably too big for us. But I think there's a part of that global supply chain for SEMI that we could actually naturally earn our way into. And that is, I think, some kind of local fab, not a full-blown fab, but some aspect, you know, flip chip bonding or something, some key element where Australia is really strong because Australia is fantastic at material science, you know, advanced materials, smart materials. And the way companies like Intel are going, the node sizes are getting so small that conventional materials won't cut it for much longer. So there's some great innovation kind of begging to be done in that space, and we're very strong in that. Also, our strong material science means we should also be able to figure out how to add more value to our commodities. So can we make a battery precursor instead of shipping, you know, spodumene to China and having that come back to us in batteries? So I don't necessarily see the future is we build all this stuff ourselves, but I think there's parts of each of those supply chains in renewable energy and in semiconductors where Australia is uniquely qualified to do some part of that. And the US, I think, would really strongly support us if they were the right bits and they were additive to their supply chain. And I think that would also give us a bit more geopolitical stability and sovereign capability. 
I need to just travel down one more path, Larry, before we call it quits. I read a section in your book about Translucent, which was a startup of yours that you had started with a fellow research scientist at Stanford University, I think, who's still involved in the game. There seemed to be a lot of lessons learned from that particular one, and this was about kind of material science and semiconductors kind of. So talk us through that because those experiences seem very live today, like in companies like Silex, who I think eventually bought that startup. Yeah, so it worked out well for Silex because their share price really doubled or tripled, I think, after the acquisition because they really started to roll out the technology and in other things that they were doing. But, you know, James, all six startups almost failed. They all had a near-death experience, more than one, I'd say, more than once. But the thing with Translucent, so what we're trying to do, we're trying to integrate optics inside silicon because we figured if you could make a silicon laser on chip, you could have a computer with all of the communications, everything all native, you'd get this massive increase in speed and massive utility because otherwise you got all of these optical to electrical to optical conversions that where you get lost and everything else and the thing gets big and clunky. So that was the idea. Peter was and is an absolute genius. I mean, I've never seen anyone manipulate materials the way he does. So he figured out how to change the properties of silicon because silicon will not laze. It's a physical impossibility. He solved that. That's <laughs> an impossible problem. And scientists like Jagadish at ANU, who's a genius also, Jag actually helped us figure that out. And we had hoped that that would turn into its own company. But the problem we discovered is it's almost impossible to manufacture. So we went to Intel and Intel started helping us. Firstly, they helped us understand why it was impossible to manufacture. And then I guess we got worried because it's like David and Goliath, right? You got to be careful when you partner. And, and Intel are a good company, but how do you manage that partnership in a way where you still get your end goal? And I was probably guilty of letting my personal bias, which is I really wanted this company to go in Australia. I didn't want it to be in Silicon Valley. So when I found Mike and Chris at Silex, they said, hey, we would love to build this in Australia. So that was sort of irresistible, you know, working with them rather than working with Intel. And I made that mistake also in Arasaur where we bought the bandwidth founder. We also tried to create a, a domestic fab. And again, you know, those people in those companies, they did the best they could. But it's very hard when you're up against big established companies like Intel and, and others. And probably what would I do differently? Probably wouldn't let my personal uh, – actually, I probably still would let my personal agenda um, interfere. But I guess with what I know now, and I, I spent a bit of time with Michelle, right? Michelle's actually thought through this. And I'm so impressed with her and what she's able to do in Silicon Quantum. She's actually thought through that problem. And I've shared the lessons of Translucent with her quite a lot. She's certainly smarter than I am. So I think she's got a really clever pathway forward. And I reckon that's where we might see a bit of a fab happen around quantum because of what she's creating. And you know, you can buy, and Syro has, a board from her that has a quantum chip on it. Now, when I first visited her, she wasn't within QE of doing that, but she's managed to figure that out, which I think is extraordinary. That was literally going to be my next question. If we're holding on so tight to this area where we think we have some competitive advantage, or we certainly think we've got some game in quantum, how do we make sure that we can build a, an industry around that expertise and those full-stack efforts that are underway right now. I mean, there's surely no simple answer here, Larry. Oh, there's definitely no simple answer. But I think the NRF is a big part of the answer because the, the NRF has adopted 
pretty much the same six national challenges that CSIRO did for the same reason, because, you know, when you analyze what Australia needs, that, that's the answer. So I reckon that $15 billion, if it's focused on the right things, could really change the game for us. And we need to do it. We've got to succeed in at least two of those big six areas for us to kind of be a player in the future. Otherwise, it's going to be dominated by China and the US and, and others, and we'll be stuck the recipient of what they think innovation looks like and what they think the future is. And I reckon we should make our own future and kind of tap into that wonderful, nuggety, rugged, prickly, Aussie spirit <laughs> and, and decide our own future and what, what it's going to be. And that's what I love about being back here, by the way, James, is that spirit has never changed, I don't think. Australians really want the world the way they want it and they want it. scientists, Australian scientists want to change the world. There's a great spirit there. All right, Larry Marshall, Chief Executive of CSIRO, for at least another three weeks. I want to thank you very much for being on Commercial Disco. Just before you go, though, I know you're taking over as president of AmCham. Congratulations. So what else have you got on your plate in the immediate future? So, James, running CSIRO is such a – I mean, you know, I'm a founder at heart, so I live and breathe the company. I've really got to get out of it before I can think about what's next. And there'll definitely be a little bit of a break. But my whole purpose in life has been to try and solve Australia's innovation dilemma. I think CSIRO is on a great track. They've contributed hugely. But I think there's other places in industry and academia where we could move the needle more. So whatever I do, it'll be on that same mission. And you'll be the first to know. Or you'll be the second to know after I do. All right. Fantastic. All right, Larry Marshall. Thanks very much for being on the program. Thank you, James. And always great to see you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Commercial Disco Podcast. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And please visit our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our reporting on tech, innovation and public policy. You can also follow us on social media to ask us any questions or to suggest a guest for the show. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you a great week ahead.